mechanism underlying our emotional responses. And, you know, as we'll see, shows how those uh, responses make sense for our quantum regression. <clears throat> okay, so now some background, maybe you're familiar with it. So the paradox of fiction, I'm just gonna get it on the table. There are different formulations. Um, so basically, given that we know our world is not as fiction describes, why do we react emotionally to fiction as we do? So three premises, PF1, PF2, and PF3. So PF1 is we have emotions concerning the situations of fictional, fictional characters. You might generalize that to talk about the, the, the situations, the events, the circumstances uh, in which they find themselves. Uh, PF2 is to have an emotion concerning someone's situation. We must believe the propositions that describe that situation. Um, we'll spell out what the must means in a second. Um, and third, we do not believe the propositions that describe the situations of fictional characters. Um, so this, I think, premise three is relatively clear. We don't believe, so uh, my running example through all of this is going to be Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I, it's just a kind of familiar, fun example. So if we're talking about the world of Smiley and Jim Prito, famous, anyone who doesn't know Le Carre, famous spy novel, British spy novelist, um, if we're talking about that world, uh, we don't believe the propositions that characterize the world that's, that Le Carre is describing. The events in which Jim Prito was involved did not occur. Um, we believe, in fact, we, we, I think we know that they didn't occur. Um, nonetheless, we have fictional, uh, we have emotions concerning those situations and those characters, Jim Prito, Smiley, Hayden. Um, basically, the situation is that Jim Prito is a famous spy, he's betrayed. I'm going to give away the book, I'm sorry, I give away the ending of the book, I'm sorry. It's going to save me a lot of time, this is good. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> you can just watch the movie. Yeah, you can watch the movie. <laughs> movies, <laughs> quite, movies, <laughs> movies are quite good, actually. really like it. Um, I mean, the situation is that Smiley is hunting for a double agent in the circus, and uh, who? Circus. So, sorry. Oh, Rob doesn't know it. And then it's fine. Yeah, I'll look it up. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> okay. And <laughs> sorry, I gotta know how much you explained. Okay, but anyway, and and uh, Jim Prito, main character, who's now teaching at a at a school, is was betrayed and. Um, in Czechoslovakia, shot in the back and, and maimed, basically. So he's now, uh, but he's also trying to figure out who it was who betrayed him. And that's the plot, and then in the end, it is revealed who betrayed him. Um, and he, you know, I won't say, I'll leave, leave the rest to you. Okay, um, so I think that using that example, uh, we can at least see that PF1 um, and PF3 are, are true of it, or it's, they, seem, they seem quite appealing. PF2, uh, we have to figure out what the must means um, in order to, to examine whether it's plausible. So one possibility is that the must means must metaphysically speaking. So in order to have emotions at all, we, uh, that would be like metaphysically speaking, we can only have emotions if we have the corresponding beliefs, that if we believe the propositions concerning the object of that emotion. Right, so we would have to, in order to have emotional responses at all concerning Prido and the world of, of Tinker Taylor, we would need to believe the, believe the propositions describing it. Um, that seems, I mean, so of course some people phrase the, the paradox that way, and then they have, they, and some people in fact deny that we have 
genuine emotions that we have. So Kendall Walton thinks, as we'll see, we have quasi-emotions. So I'm not sad, I'm like sad star, or I'm something, you know, quite, not quite, uh, it's not quite sad. Um, but I think, I think the, the general view, at least, you know, Radford, who originally proposed this puzzle, finally sort of conceded and ended up saying, well, no, let's talk must if we're rational. If we're rational, uh, we will believe, and we have these emotional responses, we need to have the corresponding beliefs about the object of our emotion. Um, so this, together, these three premises or principles uh, threaten to entail that our responses to fiction are irrational. Uh, that seems like a bad response. It seems kind of crazy. Like, I mean, may, maybe you think, okay, so um, what support do we have for premise two? What other support? Um, so, I mean, there are a number of considerations. Radford offers what he calls like rug pull situations. Like if we're, we have an emotion towards something that we uh, think is real, and then it turns out that it's, you know, we, we were mistaken, it was, it was based on false beliefs, and we find this out, our emotional responses are either totally attenuated, or, you know, they, they're basically gone, right? So we think that there was something, you know, our, the rationality of our emotional responses was dependent on the original beliefs. Um, so that, that gives us some, you know, inclination, but of course we still have these, we have persistent emotional responses, in the case of fiction. So they're not quite analogous. But there is, all that is to, it just, there's a, a difference between responding emotionally to uh, fiction and responding emotionally to, to fact. Um, okay, another, another thought is that, so, well that's supposed to motivate the idea that emotions are apt or correct only if we have the corresponding beliefs. Uh, whether or not that's true, I, I think actually that's kind of implausible, and we'll see why in a second. Um, so there's also another consideration that emotions generating, generated by fiction aren't sort of apt for guiding action, or they don't rationally guide action in the same way that emotional responses to fact do. Um, so that's also supposed to motivate the idea that there's something like mistaken or strange or irrational about our uh, responses to fiction, emotional responses to fiction that isn't present in the case of fact. Um, so another, Okay, basically, I think most people reject PF2, right? They think that this is just obviously wrong. Um, but I think that the main point of this talk, even if you, you think that PF2 is obviously false, which many people do, uh, I think the point of this talk will be to explain why it's false and to provide a mechanism underlying uh, the generation of emotions by fiction that sort of reveals why it is that our emotional responses are rational. So you could, you could deny PF2 I mean, you know, just say they are rational, but there's still some kind of puzzle there. There's a residual question that needs, we, we want to know why, and hopefully I'm going to answer that question. Okay, um, I'm gonna skip over this point about desire for the moment. Okay, so what I'm going to do is try to, in five steps, spell out a view of the connection between imagination and fiction that gives us an account of why our emotional responses so we start out, we're going to start out talking mostly about imagination, and it's going to build on some semantic ideas about the meaning of uh, ascriptions of imagination and the, the sort of the verb imagines and its complements. Um, so we're going to use that to develop a view. I'm not putting too much weight on the semantics. This is supposed to be a metaphysical kind of question.
Okay, so first I want to distinguish between three different kinds of imagining. Um, I don't know if they're like totally different, but they correspond to three different kinds of complements that the verb imagine can take. Um, it can take a nominal complement, like a noun phrase complement. Um, it can take a, a that clause, what's called a CP complement. And it can also take uh, WH phrases, like you know what it's like, or where you can imagine where you know um, where things are, what you know what things are like. Um, so the idea we're going to distinguish three kinds of imagining. So the first, um, so objectual imagining is reported by sentences like Justin is imagining Jim Prido. So Jim Prido is a proper name, noun phrase, or I might imagine Jim Prido's betrayal and capture. That's an event, right? So, um, so this category, say, this category includes any instance of imagining reported by a construction with an NP or a DP complement. So basically, whenever there's, there's, whenever imagine functions as a kind of transitive verb with the noun phrase in the complement position, it reports uh, an instance of objectual imagining. Um, and of course, it doesn't really matter that many of these complements, the things we imagine, don't exist. Because imagine is sometimes what's called an intentional transitive verb. These reports can be true even though the object, the, the noun phrase and object position doesn't refer. So I can imagine Jim Prito, even though Jim Prito doesn't exist. I can imagine a unicorn, even though unicorns don't exist. I can, you know, so on. Okay. So second kind of imagining is propositional imagining. Um, and that contrasts with objectual imagining. So three and four, Justin is imagining that Jim was captured. Justin is imagining that the world has ended. These are instances of stand, this sort of standard kind of propositional imagining that I talked about in the introduction, right? Representing you know that something is the case, uh, and that it's that something the case, and and that the world it's sort of merely possible, not actual. Um, typically, you don't imagine things if you think that they're actual, right? There's a presupposition to imagining that they tend to be non-actual. Uh, at least that's, the I think, the, the view in the semantics literature. Um, of course, you can imagine things that are actual and imagine them differently from how they are. Uh, but typically, you don't imagine things that you believe are true. Um, OK. So the third kind of imagining, and I think it will be the most, uh, sort of the one that we're going to focus on, is imagining WH. So we all know that, well, at least most of us probably know that you can make a distinction between knowing that and knowing how. Um, so you can know that the sky is blue, you can know that we're in London, you can know how to ride a bike. And there's, some, there's supposed to be some kind of important distinction here, you know, depending on your views on, on uh, I guess, on different kinds of knowledge. But I think it's much less well recognized that you can draw the exact same distinction or a parallel distinction in the case of imagination. So. Um, we can distinguish between imagining that something is the case and imagining how, or sometimes imagining how some, imagining how is sometimes, uh, it's, it might be a species of imagining WH, like uh, what something is like. So let's, um, let's see some examples. Uh, it's not just, actually it's not just how, you, you don't just imagine how, you can also imagine WH with a number of different WH words, who, what, where, when. So let's see some examples. Um, imagine, Alex imagined what being captured by the Czech army is like. Um, Alex imagined what it's like to be captured by the Czech army. So I take those to be basically equivalent. Um, what we've done is uh, being captured by the Czech army, um, it, 
that, that's a gerund that denotes an event. Um, all, that's all that's changed is that we've moved it to the end of the complement as opposed to inside of the what it's like phrase. Um, and we, I take that, at least generally there, so Daniel, Stol Daniel my co-author, has a paper where he argues that um, what something is like is equivalent to how it is. So imagining um, how it, so, sorry, give me one second. Um, so, okay, the first thing to recognize is that imagine accepts WH complements. So it accepts what, you know, so you can imagine what being captured by the Czech army is like. That I take to be equivalent to what it's like to be captured by the Czech army. Um, and then, sorry, I put a word in the handout and it shouldn't be there, it tripped me up. Um, and we take that to be equivalent to Alex imagined how it is to be captured by the Czech army. Um, similarly, uh, you can imagine what Jim looks like running through the woods. You can imagine how the Czech army managed to capture Jim. You can imagine why Hayden would betray England. Um, but you, there are certain things, certain WH complements that you can't use in, in the complement of imagine. Uh, it's hard to, so you, you can, maybe you can imagine who the mole was. That sounds a little strange to me. Um, maybe you can imagine where, I mean, I'm not sure if you can imagine where and when the secret meeting was to take place. So judgments about the, the sort of grammaticality of these sentences is a bit, are a bit mixed. But certainly there are some very good examples. Like it's very, you know, we definitely can imagine what certain events are like um, or how certain things feel or how certain things are. Uh, okay, so the exact extent or the exact, like how many WH complements figure into the comp or, uh, can, can combine with imagine is not going to concern us. We just need a few, like the what it's like complements. Those are the most important. Okay. Um, so there are some semantic issues around. Uh, there's this distinction between interrogative complements and free relative complements. Um, so, and there's some, there, that will sort of change our, the resulting theory of like what the right, right semantics for imagining what it's like sentences will be. But we're not gonna talk about that. We can talk about that in the Q&A. Maybe our views change if we take, basically whether the WH clauses express questions whether they're like referential expressions that denote certain kinds of things. Um, so, okay, um, that's the first, so that tripartite distinction between kinds of imagining is our first component. Second component is the sort of, I think, relatively well accepted or, or widely sort of circulated idea that fiction is some kind of instruction or request to imagine. Um, I think I, I should have, there are lots of people I should have cited here, I mean, but I take this to be a kind of round, like a relatively well accepted view. Of, I mean, it's yours, or partly, oh, it's not yours, sorry, it's not, it's Walt, it's Walt oh, is it, is it just Walt? There are other people who accept it. There are tons of people, but he's the first. Okay, he's the, yeah. I mean, if you're gonna like cite the or person. Yeah, I get, well, he's the person for a bunch of things. Well, it's not, but, <laughs> so it's not you. Well, I, okay, let's just let that go. Um, okay, so, I mean, we can think of this again as Licoré asking us or instructing us to do certain kinds of things, right? So, um, so there, you can think of novels or works of fiction as sets of imaginative instructions. So we might be asked to imagine that certain things are the case. 
right? But we're also, at the same time, instructed to imagine or asked to imagine objects and events that sort of, you know, figure into the story, right? I imagine the events of Jim Prito's betrayal. I imagine Jim Prito. I imagine Smiley. I imagine, you know, um, you know, Smiley's house. I imagine, yeah, um, Connie's messy, you know, old house. Anyway. Um, so the idea is that uh, we're not off, so we're, we might be asked to imagine, usually we're asked to imagine objects and events, and we may be asked to imagine propositionally. We're not often, at least explicitly, asked to imagine what certain things are like, right? That doesn't occur, you know, the, the author doesn't say, imagine what this is like. Okay. But I do think that we are asked to imagine what things are like, and so now I want to explain how or why. Okay, so this gets us to the third component. Um, there's an equivalence, we claim, that I, I call NP what it's like, or NPWIL. Necessarily, to imagine DP, where DP stands for some sort of nominal, you know, a denotational phrase or a nominal phrase, uh, necessarily to imagine DP is to imagine what DP is like. So to see some examples, um, to imagine Hayden's betrayal is to imagine what Hayden's betrayal is like. Um, so, and there's a lot of, there's a little bit of semantic justification for this claim here. Um, so, that we could just state the metaphysical equivalence that imagination of one kind, objectual imagining, is always equivalent to a specific form of imagining WH, or interrogative imagining, or did I call it, sorry, um, imagining WH. Um, but there's a semantic claim on which this relies. We can give, give kind of evidence that the sentences are equivalent. Um, the claim in semantics is that imagining uh, reports of imagination, when they take a denotational phrase as a complement, conceal questions. So there's a sort of big literature on, on concealed questions in various like epistemic verbs. Uh, so John knows Mary's phone number is widely taken to be equivalent to John knows what Mary's phone number is. Um, John remembered the capital of Wyoming. John remembered what the capital of Wyoming is or was. Um, John told Mary the top song in the Hottest 100, to use my Australian example. Uh, John told Mary what the top song in the Hottest 100 was or is. Um, so those are widely taken to be examples of equivalences because uh, a denotational phrase, um, the top, you know, this, this definite description in the complement actually conceals a WH complement, it conceals an interrogative. And so you get this equivalence between certain kind of, you know, um, you know knowledge or remembering or telling uh, DP and telling what DP is, right? So you, there's a, a general equivalence there. Um, so we think that if that's true, uh, the same kinds of considerations carry over to the what to the case of imagining, except with a slightly different question. So, just an imagined Hayden's betrayal is equivalent to just an imagine what Hayden's betrayal is like. Um, same thing, being betrayed, what being betrayed is like, and what smile you know, imagine smiley, imagine what smiley is like. Okay, we can talk about. Um, I'm going to skip the rest of the evidence for the semantic claim right now because um, it's. Um, we can, I can, you know, that, that's a sort of linguist game. I, I gave this talk to linguists before, and that's why I think I beefed up the linguistic data a little bit. Um, okay, so now what we have 
are three kinds of imagining, and we, we have objectual, we have objectual imagining, propositional imagining, and imagining WH, and we have an equivalence between instances of objectual imagining and a certain subspecies of imagining WH. So to imagine anything objectually is to imagine what that thing is like. Okay. But of course we can imagine what things are like in many different sensory modalities. Right? So we can imagine um, what they look like, sound like, smell like, taste like, etc. Um, and we might be asked to do, I think, any of these, but I think it will often be implicit, or there are, there are certain maybe rules governing which modality we're asked to imagine in. So we think that standardly, depending on the type of thing we are asked to imagine, there are certain kinds of default modalities that we'll be asked to imagine in. So um, to imagine what an event is like, we think, is typically, although not always, to imagine what that event feels like to the person who undergoes it. We'll get to that point in a second. Whereas to imagine what an object, an object is like, an inanimate object, is often, although not always, uh, to imagine what it looks like. So when we're asked to imagine just some inanimate object, we're often, you know, I think, visualizing, right? To imagine, we, we take imagining what something looks like to just be, you know, equivalent with visualizing. Whereas, you know, in many other cases, so like in, in the case of events, where there's some kind of sympathetic imagination, or imagining what something feels like to, to undergo. Okay, so I, these are, I think, default connections, and they're, they're underwritten, I mean, they might be psychological defaults. Um, in linguistics, there's a kind of story that these are stereotypical readings of, like, you know, what it's like expressions, that what it's like is stereotypically interpreted as what it feels like. Um, so, insofar as what it's like is connected, connected to, you know, to consciousness or phenomenal consciousness, uh, people think that uh, it often or typically means what it feels like, and what it feels like is connected to the, the idea of phenomenal consciousness, to um, you know, sensations, emotions, uh, even most categories of perception. Um, okay, so, so there's a link, there might be linguistic, uh, evidence for these defaults, but there might also be psychological evidence that it's difficult to imagine what an event, it's sometimes difficult to imagine um, what an inanimate object feels like, right? It might just be impossible for us to imagine because it might not feel like anything, or because it might feel like something to touch, but that's not the relevant notion. Um, but anyway, so there's a kind of default connection. Now, we have the last component, which is, um, so, it's, I think most people working in imagination have recognized that imagination is perspectival. Um, much like, you know, so perception, everybody recognizes that perception is perspectival. Um, so, if we take, so in the case of imagining, when we imagine what things feel, look, sound, smell like, um, we're not imagining what they feel, sound, look, smell like simpliciter. We're always imagining what they feel, sound, smell, look like, taste like, to someone, right? So there's always a perspectival component to the imagining. Um, so we call this person the experiencer. Um, there's some semantic evidence that there is an extra argument place in, the, in reports of imagining. So when you imagine what something is like, you need some other, uh, it's always what something is like to someone, um, you can always articulate 
that argument place with a preposition or with a prepositional phrase. Um, or what something is like for someone, you can use usually either to or for. Um, so when the author of a fiction instructs us to imagine something from a particular perspective, um, they're instructing us to imagine what something is like to an experiencer of a particular kind. Right? So, um, so Le Carre instructs us to imagine what Hayden's betrayal feels like, not simpliciter, but from a certain perspective, perhaps to Prideau, perhaps to you know, someone who's been betrayed. You can, now there are all of these narrative and literary devices that allow us to manipulate the perspective from which we are asked to imagine. Um, so the idea is that we're always, always being asked to imagine what things are like, and we're always being asked to imagine what things are like to someone of a particular kind or with, with a certain kind of perspective. Now, that perspective can be manipulated in lots of ways. We might, you know, so we might, you know, I might imagine what the war in Russia is like to a Ukrainian. I might imagine what it's like to, a, you know, and similarly, uh, Le Carre might ask us to imagine the events in his fictional world from any number of different perspectives, even perspectives of people who don't occur in the fiction. Right, so it could be, you know, he might ask, you know, often uh, authors of fiction ask us to imagine things sort of from outside perspectives or to evaluate them, right? Not, to, not just the sort of particular characters in the fiction. Um, so another point about this is that we need not be asking, so that the authors of fiction need not instruct us to imagine what things are like to a particular person. Right, so they, I can ask you to imagine what's what the war in Russia is like to a you know to a Russian, but no particular Russian, right? So that's why I say of a, to a person of a particular kind. So the perspectival component is sort of non-specific, or or quite uh, general. Um, so this is I think a, in in the semantics literature this means that that argument place is called notion. It's notional or non-specific. So. Um, that means that it doesn't follow from the fact that uh, I ask you to imagine what this is like to a Russian, that there's some Russian from whose perspective I ask you to imagine what it's like. But sometimes it's characterized in terms of the scope distinction. Okay. Um, okay, so we've gone through these five components, and I know that that was kind of a, a trick. I'm sorry for that. Um, but I want to summarize just by looking at example 17. So, I, there are four, we go step by step from an initial bit of instruction to the final bit of instruction. Um, so, it seems clear that uh, when Le Carre, you know, he, if he's giving us imaginative instructions, I'll first imagine like this event that he describes, right? Hayden's betrayal. That's just an instance of objectual imagining. Okay, by our equivalence, that I thereby, or in doing so, I imagine what Hayden's betrayal was like. Right, that's just the, the um, NPWIL equivalence. Okay, um, now we think that typically, when we imagine an event, we imagine what that event feels like. So, there, so there's a, that arrow suggests typicality. Um, 
by component four, it will typically, uh, I'll typically imagine what Hayden's betrayal felt like. And then by component five, I imagine what, Hayden, what that event or what Hayden's betrayal felt like to someone, right? To a particular person. I think plausibly in the story, we're asked to imagine what that betrayal felt like to Jim. Jim, who was uh, the Hayden's closest, oh, I ruined, I ruined the story. Sorry. Um, uh, I realized that I, I had sworn off giving it away, but anyway. Um, so Jim was his, his closest friend, also his lover. Um, okay. So now we have the transformation from being asked to imagine an event to being at, to uh, imagining what the event feels like to someone. Okay, now, given that kind of setup, given a, a little bit richer understanding of how fiction prompts us or what fiction prompts us to imagine, or what we are instructed to imagine, now I'm going to try to apply this to the paradox to dissolve it, or to reveal how or why these kinds of imaginings are, are perfectly rational. Um, okay, so here's the solution. Um, to imagine, so we imagine what various states and events are like. Um, to imagine an event or a state, or an event is standardly to imagine what that event feels like to someone, and we're going to, by definition, call this a, a vicarious experience. So the feel notion, I think, is capturing the experiential element. So um, we're just going to stipulate that a vicarious experience is to imagine what an event feels like to someone. Often we'll be asked to imagine what the event feels like to the agent of that event itself, but not always. Okay, so now this notion of vicarious experience gives us two related ways. I'm not sure they're equivalent ways, but they're closely related ways of explaining why our responses to fiction, our emotional responses to fiction, are rational. Okay, explanation one. When we comply with the instructions laid out by the fiction, we imagine what an event feels like to someone. Now, in doing so, we go into a state that is phenomenally similar to i.e. it feels similar to, and is in principle phenomenally identical to the experience they have in being made to feel a certain way by that event. So we go into, so when we imagine what something feels like to somebody, we go into a state that feels similar to how they feel. So now consider, the, the reason for thinking this is, is just a general feature of imagination that arises in perceptual cases as well. So when I imagine, um, Imagining an elephant is phenomenally similar, maybe even in principle phenomenally indistinguishable from seeing an elephant or you know, perceiving an elephant. So similarly, when I imagine what something feels like to somebody, uh, there's a phenomenal similarity between my state of imagining and the state that they are actually in when they undergo that experience. Okay, so um, now, Okay, so insofar as that event makes them feel sad, angry, dismayed, etc., we will go into states that feel similar to being sad, angry, dismayed, right? So that's this kind of idea of 
vicarious emotional experience. Okay, so, okay, I'm gonna hold off showing how that resolves the paradox, but, and then we can come to the slightly, the closely related uh, way of, of explaining what's going on. Um, okay, so similarly, given component four, authors ask us to imagine what things are like from various perspectives. Um, the author may well ask us to imagine what a particular event feels like to someone who wants that event not to take place, as presumably Jim did with uh, his betrayal. Um, in imagining what that event feels like to somebody with a particular kind of desire, we again go into a state that is phenomenally similar to theirs. Right? Perhaps it's the state of uh, having that desire go unfulfilled. Right? When a desire goes unfulfilled in that way, or you realize that the desire goes unfulfilled, it will feel a certain way. And so you go into a state that is phenomenally similar to uh, how that person with the unfulfilled desire goes into. Um, and someone with that desire, it's rational for somebody with that desire to feel as they do. Right? And so we're, we're having a vicarious experience of uh, their experience and having their desires unrealized. Okay, so why would this have any bearing on PF2? Um, well, there are a couple of ways of, of saying how this bears on it. One is that um, it is part of the imaginative instructions, it is part of what fiction asks us to imagine that we feel a certain way, right? So we're being asked to go into a, a phenomenal state of a certain kind. We're being asked to have a vicarious experience. And insofar as we comply with those instructions, which are very either, they may be part of the content of the fiction or they're closely related to the content of the fiction, we will go into that state. So that's, we're being asked to undertake an imagining or you know, a sort of, um, phenomenal imagining of, of a certain kind. Um, so this kind of vicarious experience, I claim, is it's a rationalizing mechanism. It explains why it's rational to go into these states. Because we are effectively complying with instructions in engaging with the fiction. Right? It is part of what the fiction asks us to do to feel a certain way. Um, and this is, oh, so it's not explicit in the fiction, Right? But the argument was that when we're being asked to imagine certain things, we are asked at the same time, implicitly, by means of this equivalence, to imagine how certain things feel to people of certain kinds. And so the idea is that the author is actually asking us to imagine how things feel, or what things feel like to people of certain kinds, and using various kinds of literary devices or you know, devices of fiction to get us to feel, uh, or to, to, um, feel as certain people do. Okay, so that's one way of denying, so we can deny like PF2 using that mechanism, right? Um, so we can also though, so I say there's, there's a little bit of, sorry, there's a vestige of a slightly earlier version. So we could ask like which one of these premises do we deny? I've just shown you how to deny PF2. Um, but we can also deny, for instance, PF1, right? We can deny that we have uh, genuine emotional responses to fiction. How can we do that? Well, when we're asked to uh, have a vicarious experience, we're asked to go into a state that is in principle 
well, similar to or in principle phenomenally identical to the genuine experience of an emotion. But if we don't think that experience, vicarious experiences of that kind or that things that are phenomenally identical to experiences of emotion are themselves emotions, then we can say, actually, we're not having emotions, but we're having some kind of emotional response that, is, that feels similar to an emotion. And in that case, we could deny premise one, that we actually have genuine emotions uh, concerning the situations of, this, of, of fictional characters. That would be a kind of explanation or vindication of Walton's view, which is that we actually only have quasi-emotions toward the situations and characters and fictions. Um, so, and of course, which route we take, whether we deny PF1 and say that we actually only have quasi-emotions, or whether we deny PF2, will depend on our background theory of emotion. So the main question um, is whether or not we think that experiences that are phenomenally indistinguishable from genuine experiences of emotion are themselves emotions. Um, if they're not, we're, we can be kind of disjunctivists about emotions in the same way that we might be disjunctivists about hallucination, right? That, uh, a, you know, phenomenally identical uh, experience of, you know, a hallucination uh, is not of the same kind as a veridical perception, even though they feel the same way or look the same way or they, we, we can't distinguish them from the inside. Um, similarly, for experiences of emotion, even if we end up, in principle, feeling the same way, that doesn't mean that it's a genuine experience of emotion, because it might need its objects to be there to count as a genuine emotion, as Walton, in fact, thinks. Or we, we're sorry, we might need the requisite beliefs, um, as Walton, in fact, thinks. Um, okay, so roughly which premise we deny just depends on a background question about your theory of emotions. I think we're inclined to think that, in fact, vicarious experiences of emotions are not genuine emotions. So we're actually inclined to deny PF1. Um, but that doesn't, we still have a residual question about why our, even if, why our quasi-emotions would be rational, for instance. And this explains why those quasi-emotions would be rational. Um, so we can actually deny both, I guess. There's a, there's a kind of, um, there's a way in which we, like in, in explaining the mechanism underlying the rationality of our emotional responses, um, we, it doesn't matter whether you, like, we can classify them as quasi-emotions or as genuine emotions, but we still try to give an explanation of why it is that uh, whatever, however you classify them, these responses are rational. Okay. Um, I have a few more minutes. Uh, so, now we can kind of compare and contrast. I have the view out on the table. Um, hopefully it's relatively clear. So there are three kind of standard strategies uh, for responding. And so which ver so our view will look more like one or another depending on sort of these choice points that we've designated. Um, so the pretense response is, is basically Walton's and so we're, we're actually kind of sympathetic to this response, but he denies PF1 and says like, no, I'm experiencing quant. So, you know, when I have an emotional response to uh, the description of you know, Jim's betrayal, I'm having a quasi-emotion, right? I'm quasi-sad. And quasi-sadness quasi is governed by slightly different norms. Um, 
it doesn't require the beliefs that the, the object of the emotion be, be um, real. Um, so I, I think that at least a, as a move, without our sort of strategy, I don't think that the quasi-emotion move is particularly plausible. Because as I said, we can actually just ask why are quasi, we, we could raise the same exact puzzle for quasi-emotions, right? We can ask why are quasi-emotions uh, rational? We certainly feel a certain way, even if it's technically not sadness, right? But we can ask, well, why is it rational to feel as we do, even if it's not sadness? So um, I think that what you need and what Walton needs is not simply to distinguish between real sadness and non-real sadness, but rather to give an explanation of why it is that we feel the way we do, uh, what the mechanism is underlying this. And vicarious experience for us is that. Um, OK, so the thought response, I think that this is the most sort of popular response, is just to deny that there's any problem about rationality to begin with in a certain way, because PF2 looks so implausible on its face. Um, but still, again, um, so the question with denial of that premise is what we want an explanation as to why, right? Why is it rational to have these kinds of emotional responses? We want some kind of either a psychological explanation, but plausibly also a rationalizing explanation. Um, and so that, I think, we've uh, attempted to give. And the one, the, the view that I'll talk, I guess, least about, um, which is strangely, it, it's strangely like Peter Langland Hassan defends a version of this view, uh, although his view is not like really set up to do this. Um, it's actually that we, we do believe the propositions that characterize the fiction. Um, and that we lose track, we sort of, I mean, the illusion, classic illusion response is that uh, we actually believe like the propositions that characterize the fictional world. The reason that Hassan, Langland Hassan believes this is basically because he thinks that the propositions are, it is fictional, fictionally true that. And that, of course, is true. So I do believe that. But of course, that's not the proposition that we were talking about originally. Um, so he seems to have opted for the illusion view because he thinks that there are certain propositions with fictional operators in them that are literally true. Um, so I. I find that, so suppose we don't go for that view, suppose we go, one version of the illusion view is like, well, you know, when I'm engaging with the fiction, I actually suspend my disbelief that it's false, right? Um, and so I actually do, uh, I, you know, I actually do believe the propositions at least temporarily. So, I mean, there's, there's a, an objection to that, which is that, well, that looks like a relatively, you know, you're going to look extremely irrational if your beliefs, you're, you're going from believing something to, you know, looking at a TV screen and then all of a sudden not believing it, and then like looking away and then changing your beliefs again, right? So that raises its own kind of problem of rationality, one that's not that, I mean, maybe even sort of more grave than the problem for the thought, thought response. Um, so either way, I mean, I think the illusion response is maybe the least plausible of the three, um, but whether or not, so I, I'm not going to come down strongly on one side or the other, whether the pretense response is the right view or the thought response. Although I, yeah, I, as I said, I think we are sort of sympathetic to the idea that there's some kind of important distinction between vicarious experiences of emotion and, and genuine ones. Okay, I have a couple minutes, but 